Hi, this is Dan Rao, founder and brand strategist at DSR Branding, and you're listening to Discover Someone Remarkable, conversations worth sharing. Join me as I interview passionate founders and industry experts, people who think differently, challenge the status quo, and are building a legacy. People who I consider truly remarkable. Today I interview Megan Fry, a clinical psychologist with over 14 years experience. She's an advanced individual schema therapist and the founder and director of M. Fry Psychologist, a practice in Brisbane's North. Megan's also currently completing a PhD at Griffith University. Megan served in the Army as a military psychologist, working with soldiers, including special forces. Over the years, she's combined her two passions, working with veterans and schema therapy. In this episode, Megan explains to me what schema therapy is and the potential schemas that high achievers in the business world may suffer. We discuss the current COVID-19 pandemic, how social distancing and isolation could actually be an opportunity for greater connection. Plus, Megan shares some great tips for parents with young children at home. I asked Megan how we can avoid overworking or burnout and how we can prepare better for sleep. Plus, we discuss the growth of Megan's business. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you do too. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast and being my first guest. To start, I mean, how did you, because you've been a clinical psychologist for what, nearly 10 years, over 10 years now, how did you get into it? That's a really funny story. First of all, thank you for having me here today. <laughs> it's a real pleasure and I'm very excited to be your first guest. <laughs> um, but when I was in high school, I just knew that I wanted to go to university. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I loved science and was really into music, but really wasn't sure. And I happened to rock along to a university open day and was wandering around the campus and just happened by some unknown chance to walk into the psychology lecture, fell in love immediately. And that's pretty much it. I absolutely hated first year psychology, but by I took 12 months off after my first year and uh, went back in and loved it and I couldn't be happier. So it was really just by chance. So Megan, a lot of the work you do is with military personnel. Can you tell me a bit about how you got into that? I guess, um, yeah, because it definitely is um, an area of expertise for you. Sure is. So again, um, bit by chance, I have family members in the military. And one day I said to my family, I think I might join the army. They laughed at me and thought it was absurd because I was very naive and quite an anxious child, but that just made me even more determined. So I finished year 12. I cut off my very long hair into a very boyish style, ran off to join the Army Reserves. And that's part of the reason that I took some time off from university because I went into the Army Reserves, absolutely fell in love with the Army. While I was at Kapuka doing my recruit training, I managed to get in. I got notified that I got into my psychology degree at Newcastle University so came back, started university, really wasn't enjoying it, really wanted to do army. So I took 12 months off university when I did all army, got it out of my system. And thankfully, my dad just encouraged me to take a break, not drop out, because by the time I got that out of my system, I was very ready to come back and finish my degree. So I stayed doing army reserves for the, you know, the rest of my four-year psychology degree. Very interestingly, again, I finished my undergrad degree and I thought, yep, I'm going to go straight into my clinical master's and did not get through. And I then decided I'd work with kids, couldn't get a job. I then decided, well, I'll become a registered psychologist, 
couldn't find someone to supervise me. And at that time, army psychology changed from being organizational with recruitment and selection through to more clinical work. And I'm like, well, here's an opportunity. Join my two passions, join the army, become an army psychologist. I get my registration, get paid really well, and I have an opportunity to do something different. And so I transferred from the army reserves into the full-time army as an army psychologist, where I then spent about three and a half years as a full-time army psych. And I only left because my son was nine months old at the time. They were posting me into a policy and procedure position. And I had an opportunity to do uh, clinical work with Special Forces soldiers as a contracted psychologist. And that was an amazing opportunity. So I transferred back to the Army Reserve and stayed on base as a contracted psychologist doing definite pinnacle of my career, five years working with Special Forces in Sydney. And this is, you know, a really pinnacle point for me that five years was really amazing and it really taught me a lot. And it was really at this point that I really started to ask some really deep questions about, you know, military members, about what goes on for them in service, why they, the difficulties that they face coming back from deployment, reintegrating into the community after service. There was a lot of questions that I had that really weren't being answered for me at the time. And I found standard treatment approaches really limited in terms of supporting these guys and trying to help them. And it was, it was where I started to look for more information and where I started my schema therapy journey from that point. And so I started to, yeah, I commenced my schema therapy training whilst continuing to work on base with these guys. And a real journey started for me at that point to be able to start to look at these two facets that were became really important in my life, one being schema therapy and the other being working with military personnel. So I want to learn more about schema therapy because it's an area that you're, you know, well-trained in and you're an advanced schema therapist and you're actually until, well, you were planning to do in-person workshops, but you will be doing video workshops or conferences. But tell me a bit about schema therapy and what that is. So schema therapy is in its most basic form is why you are the way you are and why you do the things you do. It really gives us a very deep understanding about patterns of behavior and the way people view themselves, others, and the world around them. It's based on a model of core unmet needs, where basically as children, we all have core emotional needs. And when our core needs are met, we grow up to be healthy, well-adjusted, happy, healthy, contented adults, versus when we have unmet core needs, we unfortunately grow up with deep emotional wounds where we develop particular behaviours to protect ourselves from those wounds. And that can wreak havoc in our adult lives and cause disruption. And, you know, many people have schemas and schemas are just like a fundamental belief system that you develop as a consequence of those core unmet needs. So we might grow up with the belief system that nothing I do is good enough where you have people striving for success and striving to be the best at what they do, but no matter what step they reach, they're never satisfied and it's never good enough. And this would be what we call an unrelenting standard schema, a schema that a lot of business people probably have. It's, it's part of what makes us successful and achieve. I've got a great unrelenting standard schema that has allowed me to do so many things in my life But at a point in my life, it became really unhealthy and really unproductive for me 
and really started to get in the road of my health and my well-being and my life. And it was at that point that I had to stop and, yeah, review the way I did things and, and take a different stance on life. So what would some other basic needs for children be? Yeah, so the core needs. So we have five oh, sorry, uh, groups. The core needs. Yeah, we have five groups of core needs. The first one is secure attachment, which is a big concept, but it basically means as a child, I'm securely attached to an adult. I've been protected, nurtured, cared for, given unconditional love and valued. Yeah, and just have been able to sort of feel secure in my childhood. The second core need is about autonomy, competence and a sense of self where um, I've been supported to grow and develop into an individual and as a person, to be able to be become autonomous and have a sense of myself and who I am in this world around me. The third core need is freedom to express valid needs and emotions. And this is just the ability to be able to express emotions. Really important, you know, to express sadness and fear and anger, as well as happiness, joy and excitement. The fourth core need is realistic limits and self-control. So growing up in, in an environment that has boundaries, where I have a left and right of arc and where the world makes sense to me so I can go out and explore it and be autonomous, but there's also limits and boundaries around that that keep me safe. And the final core need is spontaneity, fun and play. The opportunity to be able to have fun and play in an environment that creates that and allows that you know this is actually the core need when it's unmet that develops the unrelenting standard schema because we might have grown up in a home that was more dim or more demanding or more achievement focused and there wasn't opportunity spontaneity fun and play wasn't encouraged and so therefore we grow up with an achievement focused mindset where we start perpetuating this schema, where we like achievement. Achievement feels really, really great. And so we want it and we keep craving it and keep, you know, reaching for it, which again, serves huge purpose in our lives. But at some point, these schemas uh, and patterns can become really maladaptive. Yeah, wow. I mean, it's something that the achievement one is something that I think resonates with or will resonate with a lot of business people. I mean, it's funny you hear of cases of, you know, there's a the heavyweight champion, Tyson Fury, when he won the heavyweight belt years ago, he said he won the next day. It was the darkest day of his, like exactly. his whole life sort of thing. Like he just felt nothing exactly. um, and sort of spiraled, spiraled into, you know, like a really, really self-destructive behavior because exactly. he, he sort of had achieved that and didn't know what was next. So so you work with people to work through those schemas, is that right? Exactly. Yeah, and that's a really good example. And that's why I raise that schema because I think it's one that so many people relate to. Many people go around the world, you know, thinking, well, I don't have mental health problems, you know, so why am I feeling this way or what's going on for me? Because we can kind of be well and functional in ourselves, but we can kind of keep hitting these roadblocks in our lives that don't really make sense in our life now and interrupt our lives. So in schema therapy, we work with people to help understand these schemas, these deeper emotional wounds, and most definitely these really important core needs. And we help people learn how to get these core needs met to be able to have a more happy, healthy, and secure life in their adulthood. So, and you say a lot of these things happen from childhood. I'm sort of jumping ahead in my head right now in terms of, you know, we've got this current issue of, of 
lockdown and quarantine and self-isolation and kids at home, do you see these things developing now, especially given the current climate or circumstances? So, I mean, is it something that parents should be conscious of? Oh, look, it's a real tricky one. I think what's going on now is certainly opening our eyes and really making us have a very different think about the world around us. And I think that there's a real opportunity for this to go one of two ways. One way is we grow and we change and we develop and we develop much healthier mechanisms and relationships where we embrace this as an opportunity to spend more time with our kids get back to more basics and develop more connectedness in our lives with the things that are important. Connection is one of the most important things in life. Dr. Brene Brown is a shame researcher in the US and she talks about, you know, connection being the center for meaning and purpose. So if we utilize this as an opportunity to reconnect to ourselves, the people closest to us, the things that are important to us, you know, being mindful in the moment and just, you know, looking outside and taking it in, the wonders of the beautiful world as, as we are seeing being reborn at the moment, um, then there's a real magical opportunity right now. And this can kind of be one of those blessings in disguise where there's opportunity for growth and positive change. However, unfortunately, there will be circumstances where this can potentially cause a lot of psychological damage because, If we're not well equipped ourselves to be able to deal with one of the big things right now is uncertainty, tolerating uncertainty. There is a lot of uncertainty. I think in Australia, we're very blessed and we have the opportunity to live in a world that we're very well provided for and we're very well protected. And I think the government's demonstrating that right now. Very imperfectly, I'm sure people will have some nuances about what's going on. But in reality, we have a government that has largely been able to protect us from the the horrors that we've seen overseas and that is providing us with protection and stability. And, you know, it's really something to be grateful about. But unfortunately, you know, yeah, we can lose touch with that and we can get lost with the uncertainty of this situation. A lot of fear can start to drum up and if we get blocked by that fear of the uncertainty it doesn't allow us an opportunity to be able to have that opportunity for growth and and connection right now so it's something to be mindful of yeah it's something i i recognized in the first few weeks so i mean i guess at the time of recording we're sort of three weeks into this sort of lockdown period or it's not lockdown but you know stay at home type period, self-isolation. And just amazing the like the thirst to continue checking the news, like this 24-hour news cycle, like always staying updated. And and I was just thinking even that must breed this new, this probably poor behavioral habits sort of thing. And it's something I've tried to make a conscious decision of of sort of trying to switch off. I mean my phone, my screen time is just absolutely disgusting. I wouldn't I wouldn't want to share that one with anyone. But uh <laughs> but even just the news and staying up, up to date with everything and yeah, like just I guess sort of like dwelling in the uncertainty and and the fear. And this is one of the key things. So when actually when we're children and we feel anxious, the thing, the core need that we actually have is comfort. You know, the only way that a child feels safe in this world is with an adult who can actually provide comfort and reassurance. And what can happen is if we haven't grown up with that child being able to say I'm scared and a parent being able to give them a hug and say it's okay I'm here I've got you then unfortunately what happens is that child 
then learns defense mechanisms, coping mechanisms, flight, fight, freeze. What am I going to do in this situation? So I might detach from my emotions and switch them off. Or one of the other big things that we see is people, you know, cut off from the emotion. They come up to their heads and they start analyzing it because what that does is we start looking for answers. It's incredibly adaptive. We're very smart human beings and we have this cognitive capacity to be able to analyze situations and problem solve and think about things. So we bring this information up to our heads and we analyze it. And then we start to try to work out how to control a situation, how to determine an outcome, how to fix a problem. And so what can go on right now with this uncertainty is we want answers, we want certainty, we want control. So we start to be able to develop some or we start to develop some behaviours that creep in that could, if you look back, you might actually see their old behaviours. They might be a little different, but their actual behaviour could be very similar to something that you did as a child that is creeping in right now to help bring you some comfort. It's a learnt behaviour, a behaviour that you've learnt to keep yourself in times of fear and anxiety and uncertainty because when we feel like we're in control, it creates a sense of calm. I've definitely got to think about how I use that uncertainty to to scroll on my phone. <laughs> One of the big things right now is about being able to tolerate uncertainty, which is incredibly difficult. Tolerating uncertainty is really, really important. And one of the best tools as psychologists that we offer and suggest for that is mindfulness, which is about being in the present moment, focused on the here and now. You know, the things that I encourage for people right now is about, you know, being in the present moment, focus on what you can do, what you want to do and what you're able to do because your only actual sense of control is actually with yourself. We need to watch the news because we need to keep up to date at the moment with what's going on. But when we watch so much news, we get consumed by it, we get overwhelmed by it. It starts to wreak havoc in our lives because we're just filled with all this fear and uncertainty. So we turn on the news, we catch the snippets, get an update, but then, yes, yeah, switching off and being able to do something more mindful in your day, being present, going for a walk, you know, doing some breathing, meditation, you know, even if you're going to go cook a meal, do it mindfully. Just really pay attention to the smells, the sounds, the food, what you're cooking, the tastes, and you'll see that things start to become alive in you and we can feel much more grounded and centered. And that's where we start to find the true meaning of life and the true connectedness and enjoyment, which is just with ourselves and our connections in that moment. So I know there's plenty of mindfulness apps, but are there any ones that you recommend to people? I've been using Headspace for quite a while and I know that there's like a free onboarding thing with that, but I know that there's... um, I think Sam Harris has one and there's Calm and there's a few others, but are there any that you personally recommend to people? Look, there's so many out there and what I would say is find the one that works for you because between the different sounds and voices and accents and those sorts of things, it's really important to find one that works for you. The most feedback that I get from people is Smiling Mind and Headspace as being two great ones, but really you've just got to find something that works for you. Yeah, cool. 
So I want to ask that something that came up in um, with chatting to a friend yesterday, we're in part of a networking group and, and he was saying he's loving working from home, but he's just working so much more because it's so easy to go back to the desk, go back to the home office. And it's something I've found as well. Like I'll Instead of after dinner and, you know, Dee and I, my wife and I will watch TV or sort of, you know, hang out, chill out, I'll then go back to the desk and, and do some things. I mean, it, because it's, I guess, the space is so close, like what, what are some tools or coping mechanisms or behaviours? Like, is there anything there that you can suggest or is it something you've noticed? Oh, I've definitely noticed it and I am a sucker for this poor behaviour as well. Um, this actually comes into that core need of self-control and realistic limits. We actually need to set some routine and limits with ourselves and and actually practice this real self-discipline. So having a routine for your day is really, really good. You would usually have that. You'd wake up, you'd get ready, you'd go to work, you'd have your work day, you'd come home and have your evening routine. That is all completely distorted and disrupted right now. And so we lose our routine and, again, some of those other behaviors start to come in that, again, impact and interrupt our daily lives. So our routine is really important. If you make it similar to the routine that you would usually have, it's probably easier to get back to work when that happens. But at the same time, it might need to be different and and have different things in it because we might have kids at home or other things going on. So we need to adjust. But at the same time, there should be a routine. And then we practice our healthy adult, which is the adult part of us that takes care of the child part of us inside. At that healthy adult part comes out and just starts to practice some strict limit setting and self-discipline to be able to say after dinner, you know, or after work, I would come home and rest and watch TV and then have that wind down time, which is incredibly important for your sleep. Now, there's a reality that that might be disrupted. And I think if you look at this, we've all been in an adjustment phase. And in that adjustment phase, we've had to make some significant changes. But I feel really like we're heading into a stabilization phase. And this is the time to really start to set the routine. In the adjustment phase, we've had to work out what's going on and how am I going to do this? And we would have needed to have more, you know, we would have had to more of us would have been required in the adjustment phase. We would have had to give more to sort things out, particularly with our businesses. But as we head into the stabilization phase, it's a time to set up a routine, develop some routine and some structure with some self-discipline and realistic limits around how you want your day to operate and look like. Because there's a reality that we could be in this stabilization phase for three to six, nine, maybe, worst case scenario, 12 months. If that's our reality, then we need to start that routine now. So once you've kind of got, feel like you've kind of stabilized in your business and you kind of know what's going on, start the stabilization and the routine with some self-discipline and realistic limits. How important is sleep? Sleep is incredibly important. Sleep is your body's natural repair and recovery process. So anything that's not been um, you know, dealt with during the day, physically or emotionally, our body takes care of us at night. And sleep will be one of the first things to go the moment you're stressed or something's going on in your life. And your sleep will also play out some of the things in your subconscious. So if you're having some pretty weird dreams right now, 
that's okay. <laughs> it's your body trying to process. It's your subconscious. And, and you know, there's, there's links back to our core needs here again, but your body and your mind is trying to process and understand what is going on in those deeper subconscious areas. So sleep is incredibly important, but it's also one of the most difficult things to be able to control and change as well. So it's one of the things that is always an indicator for me as to how someone's doing, but it's also uh, something that I don't tend to pay too much attention to because if we focus on our overall health and well-being, sleep should then kick back into gear. So the most important thing for sleep is definitely routine. So if you set that routine up, get up at the same time, go to bed at the same time, uh, that will help your sleep. Making sure that you wind down throughout the evening. So your evening should get quieter and quieter and quieter throughout the evening Um, rather than come home, chill out on the couch for a couple of hours, have a nap, wake up, have dinner, and then restart work. You're just re-stimulating yourself, reactivating your brain, and everything's got to calm right down to be able to reset. And you'll find it's three o'clock in the morning before you're back to sleep again. Having, you know, limiting stuff like caffeine and nicotine in the evening is important. And just having a really nice sleep routine, just winding down, really trying to take care of yourself. And throughout the day, doing some self-care practices, some grounding, some breathing, some mindfulness, going for a walk, exercise helps. Those things overall help your arousal levels, your stress levels come down. They help your well-being, and all of those things combined and help your sleep. Definitely. That's some great advice. I like the grounding bit. That's something I want to do. But living in an apartment, we don't have ground that doesn't have dogwee on it. So, <laughs> <it's>, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I always make a, a conscious effort of like grounding when I go to my parents' house because they have nice grass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it always helps to ground if we're on a nice space. But there's a brilliant thing about our minds, Dan. Our mind does not differentiate real from imagined. So you could actually sit in or sit, stand somewhere and you can actually close your eyes and you could actually take your mind back to your parents' house and imagine your feet because it's really deeply and trusted within you. Uh, you'll be able to access that memory and your brain will really feel like it's there and really get that sensation of that grass. So I encourage you to give it a go. <laughs> I thought it was like magic in the grass that, that did that. So it's, it's actually just our brain. Okay, got it. <laughs> this is one of the amazing things about our brains. And this is actually the thing about connectedness. Like in that moment, you are fully connected. And we know that we're fully connected when all of our senses are online. And so if you're standing there on the grass, so next time you do get to go out to your favorite place, take a moment to just take in every single aspect through every single sense. And if you kind of take it into every inch of your body and then you store it in a place in your mind, you will forever be able to access that. And your brain actually doesn't differentiate real from imagined and it actually empowers you to be able to go to what we call a safe place or you can call a sacred place to be able to do some mindfulness and always have that as an opportunity to ground yourself even when you're not able to. Yeah, cool. I'm going to practice that. Thank you. <laughs> so, Megan, I want to take it back a little bit to, to your business now. So, you started M. Fry Psychologist back in 2016? October 2016, yes. 
That's right. So take me to, I guess, going back, you've worked in the army as a psychologist, and then you've contracted for the army with special forces. And then so what was the next step to start in your own business? So unfortunately, the contract changed with the on-base services, and I wasn't able to do the job that I loved and enjoyed so much. So I had to make an extremely difficult decision to change what I was doing at that point. And this was actually an extremely difficult point in my life, and actually a point where I had to probably do my most challenging thing in life, which was to start to work on myself. But what I ended up doing was leaving on-base services. I became a contractor for someone in a private practice. And very interestingly, at that point, I was working for someone else under their name, but I had to have my own ABN. Didn't know what to call myself. So I thought, oh, well, M. Fry Psychologist, we'll just run with that. It's never going to be a business name because I kind of expected to always work for other people. So again, not really very well thought about, but just an ABN contractor name to operate in someone else's private practice. I worked there for two years before we relocated. My husband is still in defence, so he got posted up to Brisbane. So we relocated up to Brisbane in 2015. Again, I went into someone else's private practice, and I started to become incredibly frustrated working with other people and their rules and their ways of doing things. And so I started to broach the idea of MFRI being its own entity, an incredibly scary and daunting process. But one, I couldn't be more thankful and more grateful for. Take me through the growth of MFRI. And, you know, you started out, were you just with the only clinician? And I guess, you know, four years on now, how many have you got today? And I guess, how has the business changed and evolved? Significantly. So it grew from a model of what I didn't want to be. <laughs> so this was a really significant process for me because I knew what I didn't want it to be. I didn't want it to be clinical and cold. I wanted it to be a place that was warm and friendly and client-centered and client-focused. And developing that business, by this time, I'd done a lot of my own growth journey. I'd worked a lot on myself. So it was a real moment in me meeting that second core need for myself, autonomy, competence, and sense of self, of stepping out to develop and fry into its own entity. And it was just me and it just kind of all happened to line up. I managed to get an office above a doctor's office. I happened to go get my profile photo taken with a photographer whose second hand had a girlfriend that was doing an undergrad psychology degree that was looking for a job. And I contacted her and yeah, it was just me and uh, my admin assistant, Deanna, at that time. And it was amazing because I was able to set up a place that represented me and represented what I wanted to be able to offer clients, which was a very strong client-centered approach and focused on providing care and compassion and really trying to work to meet uh, the core needs for a person on every level. So my five-year plan was to bring another psychologist in at five years. I thought, yeah, five years, we'll try and have another psychologist Within 12 months, I was overwhelmed with the amount of work, very quickly needed more admin support and happened to meet my colleague, John, that had a strong, keen interest in working with veterans. And he was eager and I was eager. I think it was uh, just past the 12-month mark of setting up MFRI that, that John came on board and I brought in another admin assistant. 
So John was full-time and I was full-time. From there, I now have one, two, three, four contracted psychologists, one permanent part-time practice manager and two admin assistants. And it's only been just over three years. Yeah. Wow. So one to eight, one to seven or eight people. (laughs) Something like that. Yeah. I do. I do do remember when we first caught up, I was going to bring up your goals from my (laughs) workshop and, and sort of read some of them back to you. Cause I think you were aiming, I think we may have needed to aim higher because I think, yeah, you you probably achieved your five-year goals in year one. I think I did. I think I did. Yeah. But, you know, I just say on that briefly, that workshop that I did with you was really foundational in making Amphrae because it actually really made me think about what I wanted this place to be and to look like. And without that workshop that you ran through with me, I wouldn't have developed. I don't believe I'd be where I am today. It was truly foundational in the development of Amphrae and what we are today. And I'm very grateful for that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, I remember I remember it pretty well. It was probably one of the first ones we did at our new office space in Spring Hill. Yeah. So it was, yeah, I remember it very well. And it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool to see how the business has grown. And I mean, I know that, um, you know, we started off with doing your headshots with, with Sean Condon and then, you know, that's how you met your first assistant. And then it's funny seeing, you know, emails from Sean of, of new clinicians come through. Like it's a real buzz for us because it's like, oh, cool. Yeah. Awesome. It's grown. <laughs> <laughs> it's been great. You and Sean have supported MFRI from the start and, and we have the privilege of continuing to utilize your services. And Sean does an amazing yeah, job you. with the photos and you've always done an amazing job with our branding and our website. So it's great. <laughs> uh, that's, that's very kind. <laughs> so if you could have a coffee with yourself four years ago and before starting that business, what advice would you give to yourself? It's a really interesting question because I often part of schema therapy is to look at ourselves at different phases and I actually haven't gone back to that moment. But as I do that in my mind right now, as I talk to you and I see myself having a coffee, I don't know, I just want to give her a hug because she was incredibly brave and it was actually truly the first moment that she actually learned to trust herself. And setting up this business, me back then, really, I had to back myself and I had to trust myself. And that was one of the most key fundamental pivot points of my personal journey and my professional journey. I have huge loads of self-doubt. It's something that I've battled with definitely in my professional career and still struggle with sometimes, but I do have a lot of self-doubt. But when I started that journey, it was an opportunity for me to trust myself. And I think, again, the workshop that you ran me through really allowed me to focus on what do I want and what will this look like and how do we bring this out? And it was a real growth for me. So I just want to give her a hug and say, well done, I'm being brave. I'm just noticing behind your shoulder, the elephant Uh on the shelf. There's always elephants around me. Yeah, I do laugh when I think of the brand identity of how Uh we managed to squeeze an elephant in there. But yeah, no, it's just a little hidden sort of Easter egg. I'll have to make sure I put the logo in the podcast notes so people can get the reference. You had me hook, line and sinker with that logo. (laughs) It was, and and it's a story. It's a story that exists. If you come into MFRI today, there are elephants everywhere. And people ask us about the story of the elephant. And I always tell them that it was on yours and my first meeting that when we first met, there was a big, the big, it's still in my waiting room, the big elephant picture 
behind me and you said, what's the go with the elephants? And I said, well, I just love them. And you said, well, what do you love about them? (laughs) And I said, well, they're these big, strong creatures. They have so much strength and power, but they're actually really empathic and kind and caring and gentle. And that's something that I really value and love. And I remember when you presented the elephant logo to me, it kind of hit two goals. One, the elephant in the room, which is very important in psychology. And two, yeah, I guess the meaning and the value that elephants have to me. So elephants is a real part of Empire and who we are today. So thinking about your industry, so we've talked about your business and then we've talked about schema therapy. What are some challenges that you think your industry or like mental health or psychology, what, what are some challenges that you think it faces? And are there anything or, you know, if you had to look at it, is there something, are there any issues that you think are wrong with it or stigmas that we need to remove from it? Or yeah, how do you sort of see the state of your industry now? <laughs> are, you, um, are you willing to pick a fight? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just taking a moment to consider how brave I'm willing to be here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great. Um, Go for it. I love my profession, but it does have its issues. And, I, I, you know, I think it's the same as any profession. I think there's people in my profession that, that do the most amazing things. However, probably one of the things that irks me the most in my profession is people wanting to make business out of it. You know, we have the opportunity to have and make businesses out of providing psychological clients to services. And we have a real privilege to be able to work with people. I do see on occasion people get more focused on the business aspects and lose focus on the client aspects. It is unfortunately one of the hardest things for us to juggle is keeping business and client needs hand in hand. And that's a particular challenge that we're definitely facing right at the moment as well. We've all had to adjust our business platforms and how we do things and finding the balance between business and client services, I think is very much a challenge for our profession and what we do. I think as clinicians, when we offer a service to people, not only do we need to get the balance right between business and clients, I think we have to be really willing to grow and work on ourselves. If we are not the healthiest person that we can be, then it very much limits what we're able to offer our clients and the people that we work with. And so I think that it's very important for us as a professional to be willing and able not just to work on our professional development, but also our personal development, because that's a key part of us being able to offer the best service to our clients. I mean, that's a pretty good point. Like you want to make sure that the person who you're meeting with is comfortable and has, I guess you want to hope that they've got their shit together. You do want to hope. You do want to hope. (laughs) You do hope or you assume it's sort of like, yeah, it's, you know, the same way people would judge us if we had a really bad website or brand or something like that. Like, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot at stake. You know, if you go to a personal trainer, you want to hope that they're fit and healthy. Exactly. So if you go to a clinical psychologist, you would assume and hope that they're in a great space mentally. Definitely. And I'm not saying that they're not, but, you know, there are some quirks that I do see. And again, you'd see it in any profession where, you know, people definitely need to take accountability. And we as a profession need to take accountability for the job that we're doing and the service that we're providing. You know, I think on the other hand, one of the things that annoys me is the way we limit, you know, 
I unfortunately think it's not the best idea to focus on mental health. I personally prefer to focus on emotional well-being. I think we can get stuck in labels and diagnostics and problems and negatives, which takes us down a path of wanting to fix and correct. And I, again, don't think that that's the best model to operate off. I prefer to focus on emotional well-being and whole of person well-being and psychology to be seen as an opportunity to develop our emotional growth and awareness and intelligence and it being a growth journey rather than a problem fix journey. There's opportunities for people to access psychology for any reason, not just because a clinical diagnosable mental health condition. There's opportunities for people to be able to go, I keep doing this thing and I don't want to do it anymore. You know, can someone help me? You know, it's in particular where schema therapy can really help with that. And we're able to help people who don't find traditional therapies helpful or who are looking for something different or who, you know, want to be able to use this model as a performance enhancement and growth model, you know, for people who want to be able to work on themselves. And there's definitely opportunity for us to expand the service that we can offer to the community. Yeah, it's a good point to see it as not just a problem solution thing. You know, I'm not feeling well or, or you're diagnosed with depression or something like that. And that's the reason for it. I mean, it's obviously a great reason to see a clinical psychologist. But um, what are the other types of, I guess, types of scenarios or situations that you think people should look at, you know, come into a practice like yours? Obviously, we can do it when there's a clinical mental health concern. But again, you can just do it if there's a behavior that keeps propping up that gets in your road in your life now. If you're highly emotional or not emotional at all, like if you have lots of emotions and feel everything, understanding those emotions and learning how to work with them is important. On the reverse end of the spectrum, the person that feels nothing and can't connect to anything, developing personal awareness, awareness of yourself and who you are developing the capacity to be more mindful and more connected to yourself and others and in the moment. And then right through to personal and professional development, wanting to performance enhancement type aspects of just, yeah, wanting to be able to understand yourself or others or the world around you a little bit better. And just have, I guess, a better emotional awareness and intelligence I imagine it'd be pretty good for, do you work with any sort of CEOs or business professionals who are trying to sort of level up in that sort of sense and being able to be a better leader or a better manager or work with the team and develop themselves that way? I don't, but you know, there's certainly plenty of people that do. And that's one of the areas in schema therapy that I think we have not even touched on yet or explored, you know, unfortunately, schema therapy was developed by Jeffrey Young for complex, extremely unwell and dysfunctional people with what's known as borderline personality disorder. So it's currently targeted towards people that are quite chronically unwell. And I see opportunities for schema therapy being able to use right at the other end of the spectrum in terms of personal and professional development and performance enhancement. In my work with military personnel, this is certainly an area that I focus on and an area that I see has huge capacity. I don't think we've even touched the surface of of the way schema therapy can help people in the community. And I can't wait to watch its growth 
because I think, I hope one day it'll become the primary treatment modality that we use for people. And I hope one day we're able to see the many reaches that it can possibly grow and expand to be able to offer a whole lot more than just treatment for clinical conditions. So if someone listening to this wanted to learn more about schema therapy, where's the best place they could find that information? My very amazing updated website, <laughs> the DSR <laughs> Bernie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, brisbaneschematherapy.com.au. Thank um, you. <laughs> yeah. We are no, w- just working on that right now and starting to launch that. Yeah. I hope that that will be a platform for people to find out about schema therapy and what Psychology does and offers. And the other area would be the International Society of Schema Therapy can start to link you in to the opportunities. Schema therapy is getting very big, very rapidly around the world. There's a lot of popularity and interest in it in Australia. It can be a bit harder to find because it's not mainstream, currently endorsed treatment protocol in Australia, but there are avenues to be able to find out information. And is it something that not only people, like just everyday people could go to, but is it something that I think before we've spoken, you talked about you actually are training other clinicians in schema therapy. Is that right? I sure am. So our practice, our psychology practice is a schema therapy focused practice. So anybody come, any all of my clinicians have to be working on or towards accreditation to be a schema therapist. So they have to be developing their skills and starting to learn to practice from that model. Schema therapy is fantastic because you can bring in everything that you know and utilize other therapy formats and modalities in schema therapy. Schema therapy just gives you a framework. So it's not like you've got to chuck everything that you know and relearn this new thing. It's relearn this new thing as a foundation and bring in everything that you know to be able to enhance the therapeutic process and gains and outcomes in therapy. So clients that come into MFRI are certainly able to access and have that service. Clinicians that do work with me or get training and supervision and must be doing their own training and supervision in schema therapy as well. And more recently, yes, I've started to supervise other clinicians. I run online supervision to be able to reach more people. I have started to run some workshops and I also assist Schema Therapy Australia facilitate their workshops and yeah moving into starting to do some webinar series over the coming months thanks to self-isolation with COVID-19. <laughs> yeah everyone is creating a webinar version of their services <laughs> these days we're all forced to work remotely. So you mentioned before so schema therapy is one of the modalities or one of the practices other modalities or clinical modalities that you guys offer I've seen is it CBT Yep. So CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy. This is the most standard treatment practice and approach. It's currently endorsed as treatment of choice, definitely in Australia and in in a lot of places around the world. As a psychology providing Medicare services, we must practice and utilize cognitive behavioral therapy strategies. The beautiful thing about schema therapy is is CBT, just a much deeper version of CBT because we look at beliefs and behaviors and cognitive behavioral therapy is based on thoughts and behaviors. I just see CBT as being more surface level. I kind of see it as like a top-down approach where you start with a thought and you kind of work on the surface to try and change some thoughts and behaviors. Schema therapy is much deeper. I see it as a bottom-up approach where we dig in And we really look at those beliefs and patterns of behavior, and then we sort of bring it up into your life now. 
So they're definitely two primary modalities from which we practice in. And then uh, clinicians in the practice, you'll see a, a diverse range of skills from acceptance and commitment therapy, mindfulness, EMDR, and also DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. So I want to talk about you, Megan. So what do you do on your days off and how do you relax and how do you sort of detach, or yeah, for lack of a better word, from the business side? That's a really good question. We live out at Samsonville on a beautiful, I say 11, my husband says 13, acre property, (laughs) somewhere in that vicinity. We have a donkey and two goats and three chickens, one rooster, 10 canaries, three dogs, one cat, one one duck and one adopted duck. I think, amongst all the wildlife. (laughs) So it's really easy to escape out here. Unfortunately, when I'm not working, I'm probably very busy running my kids around. So I'm really enjoying not having to do that at the moment. They do a lot of activities between martial arts and music and sport. But I certainly enjoy coming back to this place where the wildlife and the animals are and just being in this quiet surrounding to be able to take a moment and a breath and, yeah, be in the moment and enjoy it and be grateful for what I have. Yeah, that's great. And so I like to ask people, I mean, I've got a long list of audible wish lists from people telling me what books they love and enjoy. Have you got any favorite books that, you know, spring to mind, either business or, you know, they could be just novels and things like that? So I am probably two. I'm a Brene Brown and Bryce Courtney fan. So in terms of my books that I like to read for enjoyment, I think I've read every one of Bryce Courtney's books. I love them. He's always been my most favorite author and I've read his books since I was a teenager and first read The Power of One. But Dr. Brene Brown is a shame researcher in the US. She has many books, but it talks about the power of vulnerability and talks about allowing us to dare greatly and brave the wilderness, which is all about being able to be more vulnerable in our lives and the importance of that. And her books are amazing and she is amazing. And I've recently added Glennon Doyle's Untamed book to my wish list to read, which I'm hoping to get to. Yeah, I've listened to a lot of Brene Brown and um, I loved her Netflix special, but I think it was in Dare to Lead. I was reading that and she was talking about, she did some work with the US military and she yeah. was talking to them about if they felt tired and it was, she was associating tiredness to loan. It was actually, it wasn't actually tiredness. It was actually loneliness. Yeah. And it's incredible, incredible when you think about it that way as a society, like everyone often feels so tired or disconnect, you know, tired, but it's actually potentially just it's loneliness and lack of connection. Exactly. And it's very interesting, like Brene Brown, I don't know what she knows about schema therapy, if anything, because she's certainly never spoken about it from what I've heard, but all of her terminology, the things that she talks about fits exactly in with the schema therapy model and promotes and encourages the same things. But you know, this is the thing, like as children, if we don't have connectedness and those core needs being met, we very quickly learn to disconnect and we go through life very disconnected, looking for ways to protect ourselves and armor ourselves to prevent our hearts from being hurt. But as Brene would say, then we don't love with our whole heart and we're not able to open ourselves up. And so we don't live a fulfilling and meaningful life. And we end up being lonely and sad and depressed and unsatisfied and unfulfilled, but it's because we've closed our hearts off to love. Yeah, she's brilliant. She's very, 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 very interesting. 
I think she does a lot of good in terms of bringing a lot of that into the mainstream. I was listening to her talk to Russell Brand and it was a really good interview, but she was talking about how she was, her husband was in the front row of her Netflix special because she doesn't script it. She sort of just ad-libs the entire thing and then she would do back to back so she did one and then the other and she did the first one and she was telling a story about her her family and her daughter and her husband was like right in the middle like under lights and she said she was staring at him and he was just like sobbing and afterwards she's like you've got to get out of here like you got to go out the back (laughs) you can't you can't be sitting like front center during this yeah it's pretty funny she's she's got a really good sense of humor it's it's hilarious listening to her talk to, yeah, especially Russell Brand. So there was one question, I don't know, <laughs> there's one question, what are your thoughts, and I didn't put this in the notes, what are your thoughts on like psychedelics around behavioral change? So I know like in the States, there's lots of people going into, you know, like DMT or what is it, what's the peyote and things like that. Like, is there anything that you've looked into or read or anything like that? And we don't have to include this in the podcast, <laughs> but I'm just keen. I was telling my brother I was interviewing you and he's um, he's like, oh, you should, you should ask her about like psychedelics and like microdosing and DMT and that sort of stuff. Like, is you know, for behavioral change, is that something, <laughs> is that something you see potentially happening? Probably not legally in Australia. <laughs> uh, interesting question. I think <laughs> I think that I actually had one of my clients that went to what was it like South America, Peru, I think somewhere mm. to take her like an organic substance that I think has that same effect. I, I can't remember the name of it, but it's well known. And you go into these camps and you drink this drink, and then uh, yeah, it's stuff like a starts to yeah. I think that people look for ways to access their subconscious because we know that it's in the subconscious that our deepest, darkest fears live and it's actually really hard to access that. If you've spent 30 years disconnecting from your inner self, it's really difficult to be able to access that part of you. And sure, drugs can provide windows and opportunities to be able to access those parts. But the thing about it is, is you're not actually going to get any relief because you might be able to go in there, you might be able to access it, but capacity for change uh, is actually limited. I mean, you could also say the same about hypnosis. Those sorts of strategies try and target your subconscious and try and get in. But what you will find what I believe you'll find, no scientific evidence supporting this one, well, from me, I'm sure it exists out there, is that it's short-term. You're really only getting short-term relief, no significant long-term gain because your capacity to influence is limited. In schema therapy, we help you learn how to access your subconscious through what we call your vulnerable child, your inner child, which you'll see when, you know, schema therapy also relates very well to Buddhism and those concepts about the inner child. And in, again, in schema therapy, uh, imagery is an incredibly powerful technique. So as I said to you before, the brain doesn't differentiate real from imagined. So we actually go in, actually work to access the subconscious and the deepest memories that you have but what we then do is we then provide a corrective emotional experience so we actually don't go back through traumas we don't actually relive traumas we go to the point where the pain was caused and then we actually re-script and we provide a corrective emotional experience 
The benefit of that is just as I said to you before, you know, you can store these images in your mind. So when I have that painful image, I can bring up the restricted memory. It can't change what happens, but it changes the way that that memory is stored in your body and in your brain and in your memory system. And if we practice that, if when we feel that pain, we see that child and we use that rescripted image, then we're able to heal those deep emotional wounds and actually get long-term change for well-being instead of short-term um, short-term <laughs> highs, I guess, short, yeah, short-term yeah. relief. <laughs> That's right. Megan, this has been so valuable. I've really, really enjoyed it. So to sort of close off and wrap up, we touched on before where people can find out more about schema therapy, but where can people find you? Amfry.com.au and the amazing website, again, thanks to their startup branding. Um, To anyone looking to set up a business, I will say what DSR branding has provided has been foundational to where I am today and I cannot encourage and endorse that process enough. It was worth every cent that I've spent and I very much have loved everything that DSR Branding has done for MFRI in our development and branding. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. I think it's a perfect time to wrap up there. I mean, <laughs> you can't really top that. No, I'm just kidding. Definitely. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's that's great. I really appreciate you coming on and having a chat with me. I did want to ask, what are some things out there? I might put this as a separate thing, but what are some things out there that parents at home with kids at the moment because it might be something that I can share with my family because I've got a seven-year-old nephew. But um, are there any things that you can suggest or anything like that that you, you'd like to give away as little hints or tips and advice? What I would say is remember that this is a difficult time for us all. One thing about us adults is we have a fully developed prefrontal cortex, which allows us to have the information to understand what's going on in the world around us. Children don't. Children have fully developed emotional centers but they do not have fully developed prefrontal cortexes. And the prefrontal cortex is the part of our mind that helps us understand and make sense of the world. So it's very easy for people to go, oh, kids don't understand what's happening. They're fine. But what we see is emotionally, they may be, you may see some emotional changes right now. So parents need to be the prefrontal cortex for their kids. So as much as kids might seem fine, if there's something going on for your child, I encourage you to sit with them and talk to them, allow them to express their emotions and try to help them understand what they're feeling. Just you validating their feeling helps them make sense of their emotions and their feelings and what's going on for them right now. And that's an incredibly important process along with connectedness and, you know, being able to have that spontaneity and fun and play right now you know, so try and think about the core needs. So making sure that there's a secure place for them where they can be listened to and understood. Good routine, really important. Making sure that we have some fun, play a board game with them, you know, go for a walk, play with them and just helping them feel really safe and secure right now and just being very present with them. Yeah, that's great. That's some great advice. And I love the idea of going home and practicing my grounding in my apartment with no grass. I'll take, I'll take <laughs> myself back to, to the nice grass at my parents' place. No, Megan, thank you so much for coming on and being so generous with your time and sharing those stories. It's been awesome talking to you and I'm really excited to share this. It's my pleasure, Dan. I really look forward to um, sharing it too. <laughs> Thanks. Have a great day. You too, Dan. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Discover Someone Remarkable. If you enjoyed it, please share it with your network. To support us, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. To learn more about us or the guests on this show, visit dsrb.com.au slash podcast. DSR Branding exists to inspire people to love what their work represents. We hope that this episode has inspired you to think differently.